The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. David Yoakum here. Earlier this summer, our team had the opportunity to join the Association for Psychological Sciences annual conference in San Francisco. And while we were there, we got to talk to a few psychologists, as you might imagine, about the application of their research. We asked them things like, how does memory work? How do you assemble a high-functioning team of astronauts for a multi-year mission to Mars? Are we worse at texting and driving than we think? Over the last few weeks, we've shared two of the three episodes in our mini-series, Psych in the City. This is the final episode, episode three. If you haven't heard the others, definitely check them out in the archive. Our final conversation is with Daniel Simons, professor of psychology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. We're talking about perception and attention, and we begin with a group of undergrads, some basketballs, and a gorilla. Daniel Simons, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to talk about vision today and attention. And so, of course, we need to talk about gorillas to open up and warm up the audience here. Tell me about the gorilla study. Yeah, so the study was one that we did about 20 years ago in which we had people watch this silly little video in which three people wearing white shirts were passing a ball. And all you had to do when you're watching this video is count how many times they complete a pass. But it's a little tricky because they're bouncing the ball or passing it in the air or sometimes bounce passing it and they're moving around each other. Um, And while you're doing that, we also have you ignoring the passes made by three people wearing black shirts who are also moving around each other. Um, It's a task that requires focused attention. It's an ability to zero in on what we care about and filter out the things we don't care about, something we do really well. But it has consequences. So as you're doing this task and counting the passes by the players wearing white, Uh, In the middle of the video, a person in a gorilla suit walks into the scene, turns and faces the camera, thumps its chest, and then walks off the other side nine seconds later. And what we find is that about half of people who try and do this task don't see the gorilla. And they're shocked when you show it to them later and they realize, I missed that? How is that possible? And this is, for those who haven't encountered this study before, although I imagine a lot of people probably have encountered this study, maybe more than they know who you are personally. Yeah. What, uh, what prompted you to do this study? The study was inspired by much earlier work by uh, one of my intellectual idols and colleagues, Ulrich Neisser. And he had uh, done some similar studies with a very similar task, but he was interested in a much more narrow perception question, which was, how do we focus attention? Do we focus attention on areas of space, or do we lock our attention onto individual objects in a scene? And his hypothesis was that we really are selectively paying attention to the objects around us that we care about and not kind of devoting our attention like a spotlight to an area of space. So he made videos like this, but he had all of the players in the video partially transparent and kind of overlapping. They literally occupied the same space right, and passed through each other because it was combined later. And his question was, 
can you pay attention to just one set of objects, say the players wearing white, if they're occupying exactly the same space as the players wearing black? And what happens if something unexpected passes through that space that you're paying attention to? Would you notice it automatically because you're devoting attention right there? Or does your ability to filter, to select, uh, mean that you only perceive the things you're looking for? And he found that people missed, in his case, a person carrying an umbrella walking through the scene um, for, I think, many of the same reasons. But even though people were focusing attention right where this umbrella woman walked, they didn't see her. Now, one of the interesting things about that video was because it was filmed uh, in old school ways, it was before digital editing, it was filmed with um, actually combining two separate films using mirrors uh, to then be refilmed off of the mirrors. Because of that, it had this weird sort of black and white, partially transparent, ghostly sort of look. It was a little strange to look at. And a lot of my colleagues intuitively said, well, yeah, that's an interesting finding, but it's just something weird about the video. So we wanted to do this where there was no ambiguity about what you were seeing, where it was all fully visible. It was a single camera shot. It was choreographed in some way so that if you missed this thing, you couldn't discount it. And that, I think that's what's the most interesting thing about this sort of finding is not so much that people miss things because we knew that going back to Dick Neisser's work in the 70s. What we didn't know was whether you could miss something that's fully obvious. And then if you did, how that would change your beliefs about what you'll notice and what you won't. And I think that is what's so powerful about this study is the fact that you can miss a human-sized gorilla coming in your immediate field of vision, so to speak, and thumping his chest is both hilarious but a pretty dramatic display of how much you can miss. Yeah. And so we're going to get a lot into, I think, in a second, mm -hmm. what what you call unintentional blindness is. And I, I'm just curious a little bit more about the study. So who's in the gorilla suit? She was an undergraduate at the time, and she's now an MD in the Boston area. This was actually conducted as an undergraduate lab class class project. So uh, the students in the class helped run the study. Uh, we did all the filming together. <laughs> Why did you settle on a gorilla? Did you try other so, animals and things? And we, we wanted something ridiculous, right? We wanted something that was extreme enough that if people missed it, they would be unable to discount their failure, right? They, we wanted them to say, okay... I thought I would see that, of course, I would see a person in a gorilla suit, right? Something ridiculous. And if they would notice it, it would be something that would be remarkable to them so that they'd remember it. There wouldn't be any doubt. We were coming up with costumes, coming up with ideas. And one of my graduate students said, I know that one of my former advisors has a gorilla suit in his lab. So we actually borrowed, in scare quotes, uh, the gorilla suit from Jerry Kagan, who is a very prominent developmental psychologist at Harvard at the time. Um, we just kind of went into his lab and got the gorilla suit uh, and ran the study with it. So we, we had it convenient, conveniently there. Um, but <laughs> why, we, why does he have a gorilla suit? You know, it, it, believe it or not, it was actually for research. Um, but he, he studies uh, things like temperament in kids, right? So one of the questions is, say, a kid's particularly shy or outgoing and gregarious. Uh, what happens if a gorilla comes into a room holding a bunch of toys to play with? What does the kid do? So it was a way of testing whether kids would back away and hide, you know, be scared of this and not want to approach, or whether they'd approach and go play with the toys. So it was a measure for his studies of temperament. But it was a kind of a beat-up old gorilla suit. And, you know, we, we borrowed it, and then in the acknowledgments of the paper, we, we thanked him for the use of his gorilla suit with no other explanation, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> when you showed the video back to people, mm -hmm. how did people react? 
Yeah, that, that was the most striking thing. And, and for me, that's really the most important finding from this. It's that people are shocked, right? I mean, we had people, this was done in the days when we actually played the tapes for people on tape, on videotape. And they would accuse us of having switched the tape. So we actually would have to rewind it live in front of them to show them, no, that's exactly what you just watched, um, to convince them that they were seeing the same thing. It's our intuition that if something important happens right in front of us, we'll automatically notice it is really, really powerful. And it's really hard to override. I think that's the power of that demo is you can watch this video, miss it, and then watch it again and say, oh, I just missed that? How is that even possible? Right. So it, it's... I think it's really compelling for exactly that reason, that you can experience how your intuitions were wrong. And so why do we miss this? And maybe step into this with a, a first part of just how attention works and how we should sure. think about this system. Yeah. So I think the, the easiest way to think about why we miss something as obvious as a person in a gorilla suit is that we're remarkably good at focused attention. It's something we need to be able to do. So imagine you're just looking out of your world, you're, you're trying to drive, and you noticed every possible thing happening around you. You noticed the leaves of a tree blowing. You noticed every single road sign. You noticed every pedestrian going the other way. You noticed the colors of cars off to the side. Imagine trying to do that and still stay focused on staying in your lane and not hitting the car in front of you. You couldn't do it. Right? We have a limit on how much information we can be aware of at any moment because we can only focus attention on one or a small subset of objects at a time. Right? We don't truly multitask. So one of the things that happens as a result of that is with focused attention, we're really good at filtering out things that are irrelevant to us. If you're trying to read, we're pretty good at filtering out information about the color of the table we're reading our book against, right? You focus on the words. You focus on what you're trying to go get and not be distracted by the irrelevant things. A consequence of that, though, is that on occasion, and it's pretty rare, but on occasion, something important happens and we would want to know about it, but we don't automatically notice it. Now, that, that ability to focus attention is critical, right? And, and it's a good thing the vast majority of the time. Most of the time, we don't have people in gorilla suits walking in front of us thumping their chests, and we don't really need to worry about that. Um, there are occasions when we do. How would you characterize how much attentional bandwidth, so to speak, that we have? Uh, for visual attention, remarkably little. So we think we're taking in most of the world around us. And part of the issue is that we're only aware of those things we happen to have taken in we're not aware of the things that we aren't paying attention to at that moment, which means that much of the world, we're not aware of at any given instant. So if I'm talking to you right now, and we're having this conversation, you're listening to my words, you're probably not thinking about how your foot feels in your shoe. Now you are, right? Now you're thinking about your foot in your shoe and whether it's uncomfortable or not. Now you're not thinking about the color of the shirt you wore today. Now you are, right? Our ability to shift our attention and shift what we're aware of allows us to get the information we need right when we want it. But most of the time, the information we're not thinking about at that moment is out of awareness. And we develop these intuitions that we notice everything because we only notice what we notice. Right? We're only aware of those things we happen to have noticed at that moment. You can take an analogy. Imagine I show you that gorilla video. You miss the gorilla. I never asked you about it. You'll continue to go through life thinking you always would notice a gorilla. Right? It's only when you have it called to your attention that you didn't see something that you realize, oh, well, my intuition was wrong there. And when we're talking about attention error, you mostly, should we be thinking pretty exclusively about kind of what we're consciously aware of at any moment? That's kind of what I'm most interested in uh, in this context. But attention doesn't necessarily equate to what we're aware of. But I generally think of it this way, that 
in order to become aware of something, you generally have to focus your attention on it. Right. Whether you could pay attention to something and not be aware of it is a debate. Right. But what the things that we're consciously aware of, we generally have focused our attention on those. So for our field of vision, mm-hmm. however many degrees that is, I don't actually remember, what kind of percentage of the visual field are we actually having a focused attention on at any moment? We don't really have high-resolution information uh, from much of our visual field. So when you look at a photograph, for example, you can change the depth, depth of field of a photograph so that it's in focus everywhere, or you can make it so that it looks like a portrait, you know, portrait mode on your phone or another uh, on a good camera, and that will have the face in focus and the background completely blurry, right? Vision is much more like that portrait mode, that you really have high-resolution information from a fairly small region. If you stick your arm out at full length and stick your thumb up, right, the width of your thumbnail is about the region where you're getting a lot of detail. The width of your fist, you have some detail. But beyond that, you really are basically seeing the world in a blurry way. We don't realize this, of course, because we move our eyes three times or four times a second, and every place we look, we have detail. Every place our gaze is focused, we have detail, but the rest of the world is not in detail. So if you know somebody who has macular degeneration, right, the cones in their, the focal part of their vision system are failing, right? And to read, they have to make text really big in, in the periphery. And that's because in the periphery, we just don't have the same level of visual detail of acuity. That's why it's such a devastating eye disorder, that you can't see things in the focus of your vision with the resolution that you normally do. And so the way, the way we sort of experience a field of vision then is our eye skipping around, kind of capturing in a second many multiple thumb length width yeah. pictures and then stitching it together. Yeah, and, and there's an interesting question about how we know where to move our eyes. Um, and there's a sense in which our attention precedes our eyes. So if, I want, if I'm looking at you and then I want to look across the room at somebody else, um, my attention will kind of briefly precede my eyes to that location. So... Most of the time, our eyes and where we're looking and where we're focusing attention are the same thing. If you're reading, you're focusing your visual attention on the page, and your eyes are there too, right? And on the word that you're paying attention to. But there's kind of this repeated shift attention, shift your eyes, shift your attention, shift your eyes very rapidly, very closely tied together um, to allow us to kind of piece together a sense of what's out there. But we feel like we see everything, and it's only because wherever we happen to look, we see things well. Well, so now take me back to the group of people throwing a basketball mm-hmm. and the gorilla walks through. My eye is skipping around. Mm-hmm. I, are we registering it, but not for whatever reason it's becoming consciously aware? Kind of what, what's, the, what's the skip that's happening there where we don't notice the gorilla? Yeah, so that, that's, I think, a really fascinating question. What information actually is getting in, in some sense? Right? So we know that the light from the television right, is reaching our eyes and hitting our retina. Right. So we know that the light from the gorilla gets to the visual system. Right? Sensation works. That's light reflected from objects in the world, comes to our eyes, or lights projected from a television reach your eye, and you see it. But just because something reaches your eye doesn't mean that it reaches awareness. And that's, I think, where attention comes in. The difference between sensation, the process of getting light receptors in your eye detecting something, and perception, which involves consciously perceiving it, paying attention to it, is a bottleneck. And where that bottleneck happens exactly is unclear. Uh, how much information gets processed from the thing that you don't later consciously report, we don't know. So it's possible that you saw something but didn't see it as a gorilla, right? In which case it wouldn't be particularly remarkable and you'd ignore it. Or 
you were ignoring the players wearing black and the gorilla was black, so it was another black thing. So you didn't really process it as different from the other players. You just processed it as more stuff that I'm ignoring. And that seems to play an important role, this attention to what matters to us and filtering of things that are not what matters to us affects how likely we are to see something. And in this case, the task of counting the basketball is relevant. You're you're not on the lookout for animals coming through. Exactly. It's unexpected. You're really focusing in on the players wearing white and the passes they're making, and importantly, not the players wearing black. So what are the sort of things that do determine what is kind of the things that matter at the moment? How much is Mm -hmm. this kind of shifting over, over time, over context? How should we think about that? Yeah, so I think there's several factors, right? One is... Um, one set of factors are driven by the world itself, right? So if you are driving, for example, um, and you're paying attention to the road, there are a lot of things that then in that context just don't matter, right? When you're driving is not the time to be thinking about what you're wearing, right? Or how your shoe feels, right? It's your attention is on the road by nature of the task that you're doing. And as a result of that, some things are going to be more likely to be noticed than others. Things that are related to your, the task you're doing will be more likely to be things you pay attention to. Um, Whereas if you were a passenger in a car, you might be paying attention to very different things. So the stimulus in the world, the objects in the world, can determine what things we're likely to be devoting attention to and the tasks we're doing. Um, The other factor is what we think of as more top-down, what we call an attention set. If what you're prioritizing in your day-to-day life affects how likely you are to notice things. Here's one example that I really like. You've probably seen the watch for motorcycles signs that are posted all over the place. I'm not convinced they do anything uh, other than for a moment or two. Because if you're in a situation where motorcycles are really rare, you're not going to be paying attention to them. You're not going to be looking for them because they're a rare thing. And what matters at that moment with your limited amount of attention available is what you typically encounter on the road. Drivers, maybe pedestrians. Um, Motorcycles are not something you encounter much. But if you encounter motorcycles all the time, if if you're driving around and you're driving past a motorcycle rally, you're going to be looking for motorcycles because there are a lot of them, they're salient, you notice one of them, you notice another of them, then you're going to start looking for them because they now are relevant to your attention set. So we're great at pattern detection, picking up what's relevant and what's not, and doing that very efficiently. And so I assume overall this is an adaptive, useful sort of feature that we're, yeah. I mean, the reason we are sort of inattentionally blind or things are outside of our attention mm-hmm. is because we're using the attention on something that's related to the task and context exactly. at hand. Yeah, it's a byproduct of, of what we need to do, which is to focus attention effectively, right? And I often have people ask me, well, so what can I do to make sure I always would notice the gorilla? And I say, that'd be a terrible outcome. You don't want to always be able to notice everything because you could never focus on anything. And what we really need to do most of the time is to ignore things that are irrelevant. And there are a lot more irrelevant things than there are people in gorilla suits. What kind of individual differences are there on this? You know, not... Many. And this is actually something we've been looking at for years, uh, trying to find anything that predicts whether or not people are likely to notice. Because if you can do that, that's, that's really important, right? If you can find out who are the people who are going to spot that rare, unexpected event, those are the people you want, you know, monitoring for security risks, for example. Um, but we haven't really found systematic individual differences, and we've been looking. It, part of it is that for these sorts of studies, you can kind of only do it once for each person. So once I show you the video and ask you about the gorilla, I can't show you other videos like that because you'll know to look for gorillas. They're now part of your attention set. So I have a kind of a running joke whenever I talk about these sorts of things that, you know, people who've seen this before, I show them a different version of the task and say, hey, you know, 
uh, did you notice anything unexpected? And they said, well, yeah, I noticed the gorilla. And like, yeah, because you know that anytime somebody asks you to count passes, there's probably a person in a gorilla suit. Um, you have an attention set for it now based on the, the nature of the task. I guess surprising if you're not mm-hmm. finding big individual differences here is we certainly, in everyday conversation, talk about people yeah. that have more or less attention, yeah. even within the same person. Like There are moments where I feel like if I'm getting tired and things like that, my attention's going down. Is this yeah. right? Well, sure. I mean, your, your ability to focus attention will vary quite a bit. The interesting, and, and you can find huge individual differences in the ability to focus attention, right? And the ability to zero in on things. And would this be mostly the kind of top-down executive control you're referring to? It, yeah, it's executive control sorts of things. There are also probably just individual differences in capacity, um, although probably not huge, right? So everybody's got pretty severe limits on how much we can take in at once. There aren't people who take in everything at once, right? But there certainly are going to be variations around whatever that limit is, Some people are going to be a little bit better than others. What's hard to say is whether people are better at noticing unexpected things. So your ability to focus attention doesn't always predict individual differences in noticing unexpected things. So here's one case, for example. We have a simplified version of the gorilla video where we have shapes moving around a computer display. It allows us to control it much more. So imagine you're paying attention to white shapes and ignoring black shapes bouncing around the sides of the screen. And your task is to count, say, how often the white shapes touch the sides of a window on your computer. People can do this, right? It's just like the gorilla task. And a lot of people will miss an unexpected cross that passes through the middle of the display. That's all fine. That's consistent. What we can do then is systematically vary how fast the shapes move. And some people can track those shapes and count passes accurately at twice the rate of other people. I'm actually pretty slow at tracking these sorts of things. Gamers are pretty fast at tracking these sorts of things. So... You can look and then say, okay, how well can people do this focused attention task? And there's big variation there. If you then look to see, are the people who can do that task much better, more likely to notice the unexpected thing? And it turns out it's unrelated. Hmm. Your ability to track much more efficiently than other people doesn't predict how likely you are to notice. Um, it's, it's an odd phenomenon that your ability to focus attention and to filter distraction doesn't consistently predict how well you'll notice something that's unexpected. It allows you to filter things that you know are distracting. So imagine you're doing a task where you have to focus, but I'm constantly flashing something just off to the side of it to try and distract you. Some people are going to be able to ignore that distraction better than others. But if, I, if you don't know that something's going to be flashing unexpectedly, then it doesn't seem to predict how well you're going to be able to ignore it. Interesting. And I would have almost guessed that people that are really good at counting the basketball around would actually be less likely to notice the gorilla because they're sort of more captured in the task at the moment. You can make the prediction either way. Either they're much better at tracking because they can stay on task better or because it's easier for them, in which case if it's easier for them, they might have more of that attention left over to notice other things in the scene. Um, And that's true when the other things are things they know might be there. It's not true when there seems to be something unexpected. And we've looked for individual differences of other kinds, too. We've looked at personality. People sometimes think, oh, I have a very detail-oriented job. That's why I didn't, you know, that's why I did notice, or that's why I didn't notice. We don't find any of those things to be reliable predictors of whether or not somebody's going to notice. So a second big topic that you've been working on beyond inattentional blindness that we were just discussing is change blindness. What's change blindness? So change blindness is a failure to notice that something's different from one moment to the next. So it's, it's very much related to inattentional blindness. So inattentional blindness is a failure to notice something that's right there in front of you, fully visible, because you're paying attention to something else. Change blindness requires memory. Right? So it's a failure of a comparison between what was there before and what's there now. 
it's like the gorilla thing, except that there's no moment at any time when you can look at what you're seeing and say, oh, yeah, that's that's different. You have to actually compare something to what was there in the past. So a nice demo of this would be I approach you on the street to ask you for directions while you're giving me directions. A couple of people come by with a big wooden door and cut right between us. And then I'm replaced by somebody else who continues asking directions. Now, before the change, you're talking to somebody and giving them directions. After the change, you're talking to somebody and giving them directions. So there's not any moment where there's something anomalous or unusual. There's no gorilla in the scene. In order to know that something's weird or something's up, you have to compare what you were looking at before, the first person you were talking to, to the person after the change. And we're really not very good at doing that whenever there's any kind of a disruption from one moment to the next. And this is another one like the gorilla study that I would encourage people to go online yeah. and watch the video of this experiment. Because yeah. it's not like the people are doppelgangers of each other, quite noticeably no. different people. But yeah. well, well, it's another case, though, where intuitions are really strong about what people will notice. So when we first did this task, we didn't think it would work. Right? This, this is actually true of a lot of these sorts of tasks. We, we didn't think it had a chance of working, that people would actually miss this. Because our intuitions are just as bad. Right? Our intuitions was... Of course people would notice if they're talking to somebody else one second later. So when we first piloted the study, we wore identical clothing as close as we could. We were very concerned that people would notice that there were too many legs behind the door, um, that uh, you know, we wore similar shirts, pants, shoes. We were really concerned that any of those subtle differences would make the difference and make people notice. And it turned out that none of it mattered at all. So why don't people notice the change? I think for a couple of reasons, and it's the same sort of mechanism that's related to inattentional blindness. Uh, the, the big issue is that in order to notice a change from one moment to the next, as long as it doesn't like visually change right in front of you, our visual system is great at detecting changes when there's nothing else going on and the change can be seen as motion, something moving in the display. That we're really good at picking up on. But whenever there's a disruption, you know, you move your eyes or you blink uh, or a person carrying a door cuts between you and somebody else. Anything that requires you then to compare what you're seeing now to what was there in the past is limited both by our ability to compare things and by how much information we bother to take in in the first place. And that what we take in is really limited by attention. Again, we only can pay attention to so much information. If I'm looking at you, I can maybe be able to take in information about, say, your hair color and your glasses because that's what I'm focusing attention on right now. But that means if I'm doing that, I probably am not taking in information about your shirt color. And because of that, if I then were to go and change your shirt color without looking, if I turn my head away, turn back, and you're wearing a different shirt, I might not notice it because I might not have the information available to compare. It's just not there. Or I might never bother to compare in the first place. You know, if I'm giving directions to somebody and it's like some student asking me for directions, I might just code that as it's some student asking me for directions. So as long as that doesn't change, it's still a student and it's still roughly similar, it's never going to register that I need to compare. How deep does the change blindness go? And I guess to build off what you were just saying, I mean, how, how far can you push this to an object that somebody is more and more likely to be actually paying attention to in some sense where mm -hmm. they, they presumably would care about yeah. the situation? Do we still find evidence of this happening? Yeah, um, to, to a degree, right? And again, it's because we only can focus attention on a limited amount of information. If you change information that they're focusing on, they're likely to notice it. Right? If you're really zeroing in on what the person is interested in, you're likely to notice it. So one of the key findings in the change blindness literature 
is that if you, say, take a photograph of a scene and edit something in it, and you just alternate the original image and a blank screen, so flash a blank screen, and then the changed image, kind of like the spot the difference games that you might have seen in magazines and newspapers, but just doing it dynamically, alternating the two original and changed scene with a blank screen in between. Uh, If you make a change to something in that scene that's likely to be what people are focusing on, the most interesting thing in the scene, you're much more likely to notice it quickly than if you make a change to something that doesn't kind of matter to the theme of the scene. So it's known as the center of interest effect. The things that are likely to grab somebody's attention, you tend to notice faster. But even just like if you if you remember back to the idea of this attention spotlight um, and whether things that are right in the center of your focus will automatically be noticed, it turns out that you can make changes that are right in the middle of that spotlight or right next to it Um, where you're focusing your attention. But if it's not the thing you're focusing attention on or the feature that you're paying attention to, it gets missed. Do you have an experimental example in mind? Well, I mean, the the example where you change the person you're talking to, that's right in the center of what you're focusing on. Um, There are a lot of studies of that sort of change to a central object in a scene that people don't notice. And again, our intuition is what's interesting here. If you ask people, hey, would you notice if the person you were talking to were replaced by a different person? Um, They say, well, yeah, of course I would. I've had people come into my lab and say, you know, I always notice those errors in movies. Somebody's got a jacket on and then it's off, or they're uneating a Twinkie over scenes, or, you know, the the mug keeps moving around the table. That happens in in every movie because each scene is shot with multiple cameras. Often they're shot out of sequence. Sometimes you'll come back to the same scene and refilm it three days later when the actors happen to be available. And then it gets pieced together across cuts. And what the editors care about if they're doing their job well, is which scene had the best performances, right? which take was most in- interesting and engaging. And if some minor things change, I'd rather sacrifice that and get the better performance from the actor than worry about whether every detail is right. But what's interesting about these, this person who comes into the lab and says, I always notice these mistakes in movies, is that I can sit them down in front of a one-minute movie that has 10 mistakes bigger than anything would ever happen in a Hollywood movie, and they don't see any of them. So how is it that they have the intuition that they always notice mistakes in movies? They're only aware of the ones they noticed. So they go to a movie, they spot a mistake. They go to another movie, they spot a mistake because they're looking for mistakes instead of paying attention to the movie. And they come away thinking, oh, yeah, I noticed that and I noticed that and I noticed that. And they don't know the 50 mistakes that they didn't notice. So their intuition built up from their experiences is misleading. It leads them to have the wrong belief about what their mind is doing and how much they're noticing. Our memory isn't a video recording. It's storytelling, in a sense. And being able to go back and look at the record and correct your intuitions is something that most of us never get the opportunity to do. Um, This comes up in politics all the time. I I kind of have a stock op-ed that I could write about how a politician was accused of lying and because they reported having something happen to them that didn't. Right? And it's happened every election, every political candidate, every party, because there's a big difference between most politicians and the rest of us. Most politicians have a press pool digging into their past and what they did and what they said and comparing it to what they're saying now. Whereas for the rest of us, if you remember something and having done something as a kid, for example, or you remember some big important event and what you were doing and what you said, there's a good chance that that memory is not accurate. But there's also a very good chance that nobody's ever going to call you on it. And it's not that you're lying, it's just that you're misremembering. And every politician, when that happens to them, we assume that there must be something wrong with them, that they're not telling the truth. Are we able to tell empirically to what extent change blindness is reflecting just a, you allude to 
two different mechanisms a second mm-hmm. ago. A, you know, a failure to encode mm-hmm. the sort of image initially, and so you just don't have anything to compare mm-hmm. against. Versus, you've kind of got in the brain, so to speak, yeah. the image is there, but you don't have a system that's actually doing the active comparison. It's actually a really tough thing to study, right? So, and there actually are more than just those two mechanisms. There's also the possibility that you perceived it, then forgot it, and in which case it's no longer there to be compared. Yeah, there, there are ways to kind of get around that. We've tried a few. So I had a uh, PhD student many years ago, Steve Mitroff, whose dissertation work was trying to tease apart, can you have a memory for the thing that was there before, the thing that was there after, how it changed, and still not detect the change? So can you be better than chance at recognizing what you saw initially, what you saw later, and still not have detected the change? And it turns out you can, not by a lot, but you can have better memory for you can have memory for the thing that was there originally, the thing that was there later, and just not have compared them at the time, right? even when you were trying to detect changes. So yeah, I think, I think it is the case that sometimes things will get in, more will get in than you can actually notice changing. So let's, let's take an intentional blindness and change blindness out mm-hmm. into the wild now. Sure. Where are some of the places that you've maybe seen the first applications of how this work is of, of relevance in our everyday lives and mm-hmm. our communities? I think the most obvious case for inattentional blindness is the context of driving. Right? So most of the time, a failure to notice something unexpected probably doesn't matter. In our evolutionary past, right, the need to notice things really, really rapidly wasn't all that important, especially if we were part of groups and if you missed something, somebody else might notice it. That's why having a passenger in the car who can point out risks helps. If you have multiple people and some of them are doing different attention tasks, they're likely to notice different things. You're more likely to catch unexpected things. Driving is an interesting case because our visual system and our cognitive systems didn't really evolve to deal with traveling at 60 miles an hour and didn't really evolve to deal with the high-speed risks. And a difference in a couple of seconds of noticing something, if, you, if you're delayed by a couple of seconds in noticing something unexpected while traveling at 60 miles an hour, that's the difference between nothing happening and a fatal accident. So I think it's the most natural context for this. It's also a great case where the, in, well, great and horrible case in which our intuitions are, are really dangerous. Right? If you think you will automatically notice something unexpected happen in front of you, you might not devote as much attention to the road as you probably should. Right? And if you think hey, I, I'll automatically notice I can talk on the phone while I'm driving because I'll notice if something important happens and I can stay on the road just fine. You're then diminishing how much attention you have on the road, which means you have even fewer attention resources left over to spot that rare unexpected thing that actually matters. Most of the time, driving is pretty good. right? People don't tend to have that many crashes. Right? It's a pretty rare thing. Most of the time, people follow the rules of the road. Most of the time, you can get home and not remember having driven home without problem. But on those rare occasions when something unexpected does happen, a kid runs out in front of your car or a car runs a stop sign in front of you. Those are the times when you really need attention to be able to spot them. And if we use that up because we intuitively think we'll be okay, that's a, that's a catastrophic consequence. And it, phones in the car seems like another place to emphasize where I think I think there probably is a little bit of a growing awareness of the dangers of, mm. of texting yep. on your phone. You're actually literally looking yeah. off the road. But I've talked to many people who say, well, you know, I would never I would never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got just the audio on. I won't look at the screen. I've maybe yeah. got the built-in. Many yeah. cars have built-in phones. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? There, there's relatively little evidence that there's any difference in terms of the attention problems induced between handheld phones and hand-free phones. 
having the hands-free phone doesn't help because the impairment's not with your hands. The impairment's in your head. And part of this is, again, another case of our intuition not being right. We assume that talking on a phone is a totally different sort of thing than driving. But both of them, as it turns out, use attention in many of the same ways. So we know intuitively that you can't chew gum, talk, and whistle at the same time because they all use your mouth in conflicting ways, right? We don't realize that talking, generating speech, understanding speech, and driving, staying focused on the road, knowing where the car in front of us is, knowing how much space we have, how fast we're going, we don't realize that those are actually using up the same cognitive resources. And we can't actually multitask when two things require the same resource. So it's a case in which our intuitions about what we can and can't do are built up by our experiences, and that causes problems. So I, one thing I do often when I talk about this is I'll, I'll ask people in the audience, hey, how many of you have talked on the phone while you're driving? And you know, people sheepishly raise their hand because they know they shouldn't, but they don't intuit why they shouldn't. And then I ask them, okay, how many of you have ever noticed somebody else talking on the phone while driving and doing really terrible stuff, you know, running stop signs, weaving, not going when the light turns green? And everybody raises their hand. Then I ask them, okay, uh, how many of you raise your hand for both questions? Because the people who raised their hand and said they've talked on the phone, who think they can do it just fine, are the same people that other people see swerving and not stopping at stop signs. But when you're talking on a phone, you're doing those things. But because you're talking on a phone, because you're distracted, you don't notice yourself doing those things that are not good driving. So you think you're doing just fine because you're not noticing all of the dumb things that you're doing while you're driving. It, it harkens back to those of us who are old enough to remember the early campaigns from Mothers Against Drunk Driving. One of the standard objections you'd hear from people is, well, I drive fine. I drive a little better when, I'm, when I've had a drink or two. And I'm like, what causes that? What causes that belief? Part of it's a problem with understanding statistics at a, at a population level. It's true that most people, if they have a couple of drinks, are going to get home without an accident because crashes are relatively rare. And they might build up this intuition because of all of those experiences of having gotten home that they're good at it. But they don't realize that statistically they're three times or four times as likely to be in a a severe accident, a severe crash. Cell phones are exactly the same thing. You'll get home most of the time just fine talking on the phone. You're not going to get in crashes most of the time. You might never get in a crash. And every single time you talk on the phone and get home while you're driving, it reinforces your mistaken intuition that you're doing just fine. But when you tally it up over a lot of people, talking on the phone while driving is roughly the equivalent of driving under the influence of alcohol. So it's a bad thing. Texting is much worse. And we actually have decent intuitions about that. Most people know that they can't look away from their phone for more than a couple of seconds without losing road awareness, right? They'll they'll have merged over across a lane line after a couple of seconds. So People know that they have to look back up. That's why in the old days when people would change their radio station, they'd look down and then they'd look back up and they'd do that efficiently enough that they'd keep on the road just fine. Texting, the problem is we don't realize how long we've looked away. So if you're texting and driving, you get a text comes in, you look at it, you're going to keep reading until the end of that text and you won't realize that you've just looked away for five seconds or more. And when you do that, you could be on the far side of the road in oncoming traffic and not realize that that's happened. What about talking to other people who are physically in the car with you? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's a difficult thing to, uh, to study the consequences of that because the effect of that is much smaller than the effect of talking on the phone. And there are at least three reasons why having a passenger in the car might not be as bad. Right? One is that the person in the car might notice the unexpected thing. Hey, there's a kid in the street. 
um, and you'll stop as a result even if you hadn't noticed it. So they can actually help in some contexts. Another is that you can hear them more easily. So cell phones, as good as they are, the audio quality still is not the same as somebody right next to you. So it might just be harder to make sense of the speech on a cell phone. I think those are things, that's something that eventually will be fixed, and I don't think it's the major factor. I think the big factor is a social awareness one. So when somebody's sitting next to you in the car and you're driving, if you get into a high-traffic situation and stop talking, that passenger is going to look out at the road and realize why you've stopped talking. So they're going to be fine with not talking for that moment. But the critical thing is that you as a driver know that you share the situation with the passenger. So you know as a driver that if you're in a tight traffic situation, you can stop talking and you won't have to worry about offending the passenger who will figure it out. When somebody's on the other side of a cell phone conversation, they are not sharing your situation. If you stop talking, they won't know why you've stopped talking. They might assume that you're upset at what they just said. They might expect a response. And you as the driver know that they don't know the situation. So there's a really strong social pressure to maintain the conversational flow, to not stop talking, to respond to their questions when they're on the other end of a cell phone because you know that they don't understand why you've stopped talking. So I think that social shared awareness is is the bigger factor. What about some other settings? I mean, Mm -hmm. one I've seen you maybe dabble around with is actually how these principles play out in in organizational Mm -hmm. settings and in leadership settings. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of the, the things that play out in, in other settings often have to do with these sort of mistaken intuitions about how our minds work, not just inattentional blindness, failures to notice things and, and change blindness. But we tend to have this intuitive belief that our memories, the things that we recall vividly are accurate. Probably anybody who's listening has had a situation in which they remember having something happen and they talk to somebody else who remembers it differently and they're convinced the other person must be misremembering. Because we have this belief that our own memories, especially if they're vivid memories, must be accurate. And that plays out in organizational settings all the time. So really common experience uh, from committee meetings is everybody thinks they're in agreement, they go away, and a week later you have the same arguments again because everybody remembers it later as being what they wanted, not what actually happened. So we rely on whatever our memory is now as an accurate representation of what we agreed to or what we remembered before. So you have to work around this. And there's a great tool for making sure that our memory is right, which is to write things down. So one one practical thing I often recommend to people after a meeting is send a summary of everything that everybody agreed to and what you remember having had the meeting and ask for agreement and corrections right then. And if everybody agrees to it, then you have a documented evidence that well, this is what we said, and this is what everybody agreed to. And if people, if you misremembered it or if you didn't understand it, you'll find that out right away and kind of hedge that off. Another setting that comes to mind here is I assume this is the space, inattentional blindness, change blindness, that magicians yeah. operate in. Is this the case? Oh, yeah. And, and magicians have talked about these sorts of phenomena for decades and decades, right? So magicians, in many ways, attention researchers are catching up to what magicians have done through informal experimentation for centuries. So a lot of what magicians focus on is distraction and diversion of attention. And there, there are elegant ways of doing that, and then there are the sort of hokey ways of doing that. If I just tell you, hey, look over there, right, that's not good magic. The, the key to good magic is to get your attention focused in a way that you don't notice how they produce the effect. So they want you to be looking right at them and not seeing what they're doing. 
So elegant magic is often like that, where you get people focused on one idea for how things are going. And when you do that, when you lead an audience to think that you're, say, hiding the ball under this cup, that's exactly what they want you to do, because then your attention is zeroed in on that hypothesis when that was their intent all along, was to give you an attention set to get you thinking about that aspect of what's going on, and they do exactly the opposite a moment later. They're, they're leading you by focusing your attention on what they want you to focus on and not what you want to focus on. Filmmakers do the same thing, right? Filmmakers want your attention focused in a particular place in, a, in an, every shot, right? They're, they're filming in such a way that they drive your attention around the scene so that you'll take in what they want you to take in because that's good storytelling. Magic is very much the same way. It's storytelling, right? They want you focused on the story that they're laying out for you and not on how they're producing it. The TSA X-ray screens that are coming yep. through seems like a pretty challenging yeah. attention task. Do we know anything about how well people can perform it? It's really hard. Um, and and it's, a, it's a particularly hard task because it's a low-probability task, right? So you're scanning bag after bag after bag, and very few of them have anything that they need to worry about in them, which means that it's what's known as a low-prevalence search, Right. You're searching through, you might search through hundreds or even thousands of bags without seeing a single thing that matters. Most likely you'll see water bottles, but you're not going to see a whole lot of things that are at high risk. And one result of that is when you're searching for really low prevalence events, again, we're very good at pattern perception. You start developing an expectation, conscious or otherwise, that there's not anything there. When you do that, it makes you that much less likely to notice the thing that's there. So there's actually quite a bit of work on on exactly that problem in baggage scanning as well as in radiology, detecting unusual uh, radiographs. Low prevalence search is particularly hard. There are things you can do to, to help. One is to have a lot of extra things inserted in so that people are actually finding things, so make it not low prevalence. Another is giving people a chance to correct themselves. So sometimes people will just let something pass and say, oh, wait a second, I think there was something there and look at it again. And that can sometimes help. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a really challenging problem in that context. And you know, if, if you look at the, what the TSA often will do is to test the screeners and occasionally have somebody go through with a gun. And they miss a lot of them because it's a really difficult, attention-demanding task. You can train people to say, search for, give them a lot of practice searching for a knife embedded in this bag. And they get much better at searching for that knife. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they notice other unexpected things. Steve Mitroff, I mentioned earlier, uh, one of my former students, has done a lot of work on whether you can train people and whether you can not just train people, but whether you can predict who's going to be good at this task and who's not. And because it's a focused attention task where you're actively searching for a particular set of types of things, there are individual differences there that you can capitalize on. Hmm. So that's one of the goals of his work is to do training along those lines. And are these the same people that might be more likely to pass the gorilla test? Probably not, because again, it's a focused attention task and a vigilance task, and you can look for individual differences in those abilities, that ability to stay focused and that ability to look for the things that you know might be there. But again, it's a really well-defined task, so it's probably going to be finding the people who are good at counting passes, not so much the people who are good at noticing the unexpected thing. The other big space that comes to mind here, it's, it's actually the other side of the coin in thinking mm -hmm. about attention capture. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about advertising. Yeah. And this is just becoming more and more prolific with mm -hmm. both signs physically out in the world, but in our digital lives, yeah. just everywhere having ads that are popping up and articles and things like mm -hmm. that. What do you what do you make of this 
space? I mean, how, what mm -hmm. are the things that are, that are capturing our attention? And then what are the consequences for the things that we're actually trying to do in our life yeah. that ads are interrupting, essentially? Yeah. I mean, it, there's, there's some debate about how effective those sorts of ads are. So there, there's a reason why YouTube ads now will play before you can watch your video rather than popping up over it. If you can't help but watch it in order to get to your video, you're more likely to see it. Whereas the pop-up ads that are kind of placed over it, people don't tend to pay much attention to them. So the advertisers aren't going to want that because you're not getting the image impression that they want. You're, it's being shown to you, but you're not seeing it because you're focusing on the video behind it. So there's a reason I think that they've, a lot of the advertising has stopped uh, just kind of in putting off things off to the sides because they're not effective. Another illustration of this would be the advertising billboards on the sides mm -hmm. of roads, which yeah. seem, particularly given some of the things we've just talked about, kind of crazy that we it's potentially need to have it. Yeah, especially the, the really dynamic ones that are very bright so that they impinge on awareness. So it's, it's one thing to have a bunch of billboards out there that you can start to ignore, right? Because you know they're there, but you don't really care about them. So you're not focusing on them. You're focusing on the road. Uh, the ones that kind of intrude on awareness that you... And of course, what advertisers want to do is intrude on your awareness. So it's their entire goal to distract you from what you're doing right? so that they can get their message in front of your attention. So my guess is that regular billboards are not going to be too much of a concern because you learn to filter them. But the, the big flashing bright ones that change or that have content on them that is particularly salient, is, that's going to pull your gaze away from the road. Again, since our attention is so focused, now thinking of attempts for people to be multitasking, doing mm -hmm. things, their cell phones popping up, they're doing email, they're answering friends. How good are we at multitasking? Not good at all. And we don't realize how not good we are. So one thing we, we often do is confuse sequential tasking with multitasking. Right? So everybody who's got a job is juggling lots of tasks right, all the time. We have lots of demands on our time. We have lots of things we have to be thinking about. And we think that that's multitasking. I've got five projects I'm working on this week, but that's not multitasking. You're not working on all five simultaneously. You're working on one, and then you get distracted from that and have to shift to another one. And people can do that. They can shift from one thing to another. There's sometimes some costs from that. But what we can't do very easily is simultaneously pay attention to two things at once. And more things is even worse. So when you're talking to your friend on your phone, you're not paying attention to the, what's going on around you as well. When you're having a conversation, you can't text as effectively. If you're driving and talking on the phone, uh, your driving is impaired, as is your phone conversation. Um, both are impaired by each other because they're using the so same cognitive resources. So we really can't do two things simultaneously that draw on the same cognitive capacities without both of them being impaired. Well, so we're almost out of time, but there mm -hmm. is one other area of work that you've done that I think is mm -hmm. one that's worth airing out because there's a lot yeah. of people hearing about it, seeing advertisements about it, and perhaps being misled by it. Mm -hmm. And it's claims around the ability of video games and kind of online training programs and things like mm -hmm. that to improve cognitive yeah. performance. How, first of all, how did you, how did you get in this space? What'd you do? Um, and then I'll ask what you learned. I, I've been working with colleagues on these sorts of training studies for a long time. So, uh, a former graduate student at Illinois, uh, Walter Boot, who's now at Florida State, um, during his dissertation work was trying to do a big video game training study. And what's interesting about these studies, and it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating literature, what was remarkable about the claims coming out of that literature early on was that they were claiming that by playing this game, 
you could improve cognitive abilities that were not directly trained in the game. Um, and from a cognitive training world, being able to practice one thing and have it improve lots of other things is the holy grail of training, right? Everybody knows that if you practice something hard enough and long enough, you get better at that, right? But what if you could just play a game or practice something else and have that get lead to real-world improvements on lots of other things? If you could do that, then you could potentially dramatically improve people's performance uh, with something that was relatively low cost to do. Right? And um, there were a number of early claims about these sorts of benefits from doing things like playing action video games or more recently using brain training programs. Um, and the claim was you could do this one thing and it would help you better remember your friends' names or help you stave off the effects of cognitive aging or help you stay on the road longer as a driver. Um, lots of things that really matter to people. And when we started digging into this literature, we realized that there had not been any sort of systematic review of the methodology that people in these studies used. These are clinical trials. They're interventions in which you're comparing people who get a training and people who get something else or don't, get, don't do anything else. And nobody had really systematically reviewed what's the evidence behind these claims that these uh, software programs that you can buy uh, or subscribe to actually improve real-world performance. And it turned out when we uh, had worked with a team of, uh, we had seven authors from around the world working on a comprehensive review of this for psychological science and the public interest. Um, after reviewing it, what we found was that there were massive problems with how these studies are done. Many use very small samples. There are a handful of very good studies. The very good large studies, the primary finding from them is that you don't get what's known as broad transfer of training. If you practice a speeded response time task, you get better at responding faster on similar speeded responses. If you practice a particular memory task, you might get better at that memory task or very closely related ones. But very few of these studies measured real-world outcomes in an objective way. So they mostly measured how much better you get at other computer games. And very few of them had appropriate control baseline uh, groups to rule out things like the placebo effect. And this, this is big money. These it's companies are still yeah, it's, out it's, there doing this? or what's It's a multi-billion dollar a year industry now. Um, and it's, uh, um, there, there's a lot of money in it, and there's a lot of uh, desire for it to be true. Right? I mean, everybody wants the quick, easy fix. You want to be able to get better at something that's hard for you. You want to stave off the memory failures that you get as you age. Um, everybody wants that, and they want it to be true that, hey, I can get better at that just by doing these computer tasks. And it'd be nice if it were true. And unfortunately, things that fall into that category of it would be nice if it were true are really easy to make people believe. I'm curious what's coming down the pipeline for you, mm -hmm. what research you're up to now, um, what we should stay on the lookout for. Um, I'm still doing a lot of work on inattentional blindness. Uh, and a study that came out a year or so ago um, that is one of the few real-world inattentional blindness variants, we uh, worked with police trainers, uh, police trainees and pl experienced police officers, doing a simulated traffic stop uh, at the Police Training Institute in Illinois. And What's interesting about that, it's a, it's a training institute that really works on how to handle difficult and, and routine police situations. So they do a lot of simulation training situations where they actually do traffic stops, they handle hostage situations, they do all of the sorts of things that an officer might encounter in their days. And what we were interested in was, could we predict whether or not people would notice an unexpected event that was relevant to them, that was important? So we had people do a simulated traffic stop, 
where they're told, hey, this car up here that had a, a, an actor in it as a driver, very experienced simulation actor, former police officer, and you're going to go give him a citation because he ran a stop sign. So the officer goes through their whole procedure of going up to the car and you know, asking for the license and registration and pointing out that they ran the stop sign. And during the entire interaction, there's a gun sitting on the dashboard of the passenger side of the car. Right? And the question is, do they notice it? And we knew that people would miss it. Right? That, that was, it's inattentional blindness. They're not looking for a gun on the passenger dash, even though it's directly relevant to how they should act and what they should do. But we found that a lot of people, a lot of the officers didn't notice it. And what we were interested in was how, say, the driver's interaction style would affect whether or not they'd notice. So we had the driver either act really obnoxious and aggressive, still gave the license and registration, but was complaining about quotas and kind of yelling. So acting really agitated and upset versus acting completely apologetic and cooperative and, and quiet. And we were interested in whether that would lead to different rates of noticing. And you could predict it either way. Turns out that that didn't seem to matter much at all in this context. We had about a, a third of the experienced officers missed the gun, about two-thirds roughly of the trainees missed the gun. All of them were surprised that they could have possibly missed it and were, were disturbed by that. And so there's a thought that there might be things you can do in a training? Well, that was, that was our idea. Our idea was to try and look and see what are the factors that, that lead to people noticing or not. And we wanted to see whether there'd be this difference in how the, how the driver acted. And it was just one situation. It was one actor. We didn't vary things like the race of the actor. We didn't vary the context. It was done at a police training institute, so there wasn't any real risk involved. So there are lots of factors that might not translate to a real-world case of this, other than that we now know that the intuition that people have is that they'll notice these things and that many of them won't. But yeah, the idea was to say, okay, let's see if we could find out if they're more likely to miss it if the driver is very cooperative. Or are they more likely to miss it if the driver's aggressive? If that were the case, then that's something that you could teach during training to say, hey, just because you think that you'll be more likely to notice in this case, not necessarily true. Daniel Simons, thanks for joining the podcast. Now you can go take off your gorilla suit. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. The podcast at D.C. is brought to you by The Lab at D.C., an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Podcasts.